the table is where life happens. It's where imagination runs wild. Where lessons are learned. And wonders are built. The table is where time can stop. Where wounds are comforted. And freedom begins. It's where we find peace. And we laugh till it hurts. The table is where we gather with family, new and old, to share stories, to nourish our bodies, to enrich our souls. The table is where we give thanks and where we remember what great gifts we have been given. Good morning. It is so good to be with you this morning. I'm glad that you are here as we begin to settle down and uh, into, as Charles said, the normalcy of the school year. It's so funny how we we figure that is the rhythm of our lives starting and, and ending school. And, and rest assured, Pastor Elizabeth has not left you. She's just taking a little time before uh, the craziness begins. And so it is uh, always uh, my honor and a privilege and a joy to be able to bring you the word. So um, it's all about Eucharist today, all about the table. And uh, yes, I realize it's not the first Sunday of the month for you purists, but we're going to do it anyway. Um, so I'm going to invite you to stand as you are able for the reading of our gospel lesson. It comes to us from John's gospel, and I'm going to have a hard time seeing it. Um, who's on the lights back there? Can I have some more light, or is this it? This is it. All right. Good luck. Here we go. Uh, verses uh, 51 through 60 of John's gospel, chapter 6. I am the living bread that came down from heaven, Jesus said. Whoever eats of this bread will live forever, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever eats me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like that which your ancestors ate and they died, but the one who eats this bread will live forever. He said these things while he was teaching in the synagogue of Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, 
this teaching is difficult, who can accept it? Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Seriously, this is it? All right. I guess it will take away my crutch. There we go. Um, I, I, I try to stay away from the paper, but uh, I'm not there yet. But um, So anyhow, um, Charles mentioned in the uh, bulletin there's an insert uh, about small groups. And, and, and many of you who have been here a while know that my path to pastoral ministry, to this place, uh, to be your, your pastor, um, passed through Disciple Bible Study. It was not long after uh, Jill and I uh, came here. We brought the kids, and this became our new church home. And, and she uh, signed up for Disciple Bible Study in the fall of that first year. And I was still traveling um, for a living, so I was gone a lot. And, and the impact that that study made on her life, week in and week out, daily, sitting with the Word, reading and studying and journaling, and then meeting with others, on a weekly basis to discuss and sort of have holy conversation. It, it was incredible, and, and it inspired me, and, and I wanted some of it for myself. And so the next year, I signed up for Disciple Bible Study, and, and it began a five-year run of being in the Word on a daily basis and meeting with some of you and on a regular schedule and talking about Scripture and being impacted feeding, if you will, on, on God's Word. And, and I say that because we're kicking off studies, and Disciple 1 and 2 are both being offered, and if you've never been through either of those, I would encourage you to do that, or prayer, prayerfully consider doing that, and also any of the other number of studies or the sermon discussions gr- groups. It is incredible when believers get together and study and share and discuss the Word of God and are open to what God might be saying and what God might be doing in their lives. The transformational power of the daily study of God's Word is one of mystery. And it can't be explained, and it doesn't happen all at once, but slowly but surely, day by day, transformation happens. And so I was, I was preparing this sermon, and, and one of the benefits of preaching uh, infrequently is I get a pretty good bit of time to prepare, and so I know what the text is, and so I think about it, and I study it, and talk to others about it, and, and sort of marinate um, in it. And, and it reminded me of that season of my life where the Word was alive and at work, And it helped me to sense God's call on my life and begin to wrestle with what that might look like. And then it only took me about eight more years before I finally got it. But I'm here nonetheless. The slow work of of God, as they say. Things that were formerly hidden were now visible and and it all began to, to make sense on a deeper level. And the layers of meaning... Um, that are revealed in the study of John's gospel are incredible. And the short passage that I just read out of chapter 6 doesn't do justice to the whole chapter. And, and so I would encourage you to, later today or sometime this week, if you would take the time to sit with the scriptures and read the entire uh, chapter 6. It is a, a powerful discourse 
on Jesus as living bread and true food. John's gospel is not a historical account. It's not like the synoptics. He doesn't worry about dates and places and times. His is uh, much deeper than that. And, and, and it's a narrative, and it's laid out in a particular way and with a very specific purpose. And it's, it's almost mystical. It, it, it definitely is more spiritual and more theological. And he exposes in his narrative the disconnect between Jesus' words, what, what he's teaching to the people and those who are hearing it, whether it's the Sadducees and the Pharisees, the temple leaders, um, the, the people around the table, or when the Sermon on the Mount, he's speaking in terms that few actually get or understand. You must be born again, he said to Nicodemus, whose response was, can a man enter a second time into his mother's womb? Or to the woman at the well, if you knew who it was that you were asking for a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. And her response was, sir, you have no bucket. Huge disconnect from where Jesus is speaking and teaching and those who are hearing it's in John's writing that we see the seven I am sayings of Jesus. And, and I am the bread of life, which you heard me read in that passage. I am the light of the world, the gate, the good sh- shepherd, the, the way, the truth, and the life. These are all descriptions that are significant to the Jewish people. And, and because John's audience absolutely was Jewish... And, and likely they were scholars and, and lawyers and students of Torah. And, and they would have seen those connections. They would have remembered Moses's, uh, the story of Moses and the Exodus where Moses goes to God and says, uh, or he asks in response to God sending him, Who, whom should I say is sending me when I go to the Hebrew people? And, and Moses says, I am. Tell them it is the great I am that has sent you. And and so those that are hearing these words, Jesus saying, I am whatever, they they would make that connection. And it would cause them some tension and some confusion. John sets the tone for his entire gospel in his first sentence. In the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God. The Word was God in the beginning. And then later on in verse 14 he says, And the Word became flesh and walked among us. You see where he's going? Jesus, in existence from the very beginning, the same as God, took on flesh, came and lived with us. And then he says, Eat my flesh. It is profound. And then this teaching in chapter 6, Jesus' teaching where, where He reveals Himself as the bread of heaven is preceded by the feeding of the 5,000. So right at the beginning of chapter 6, Jesus um, feeds the 5,000. And Jesus makes this connection between that feeding five loaves, the five books of the Hebrew Bible, Torah, and the manna in the wilderness that God rained down from heaven to sustain the Israelites in the desert. 
And in this moment where he, he names himself the bread of heaven, the bread that gives life, the bread of life, eat my flesh, drink my blood, The next day, the people realize that he is gone and, and he has walked across the water to the other side in the middle of the night and so they follow him and they join him and so he unpacks this teaching and, and understood literally this, this can be difficult teaching as it says in the scriptures, who can understand it? And then later on, it says, and many walked away. It was just too difficult, but it, but it really was just exposing the separation between what he was saying and what they were hearing. Food, especially fruit and weed and, and bread are, are powerful metaphors in the Hebrew Bible. Food is important for sustaining life. It's important to us. We are probably the most food-obsessed culture in the world. And I have no evidence to support that. But if you pay attention to the 300 messages, advertisements that you're exposed to on a regular basis, on a daily basis, you'll see that a good number of them are related to food or diet or some sort of promise as to if you eat the right thing, you will feel a certain way. And because we've made the creators of some of those fad diets into millionaires, we must have believed it at some point or another. Maybe, maybe you've followed one of those. Maybe Mr. Atkins is your friend. Or you've been to South Beach. Um, or um, paleo or Mediterranean or ketogenic. Or perhaps you stuffed yourself with cabbage soup at some point. Food matters. And we believe it. You are what you eat, they say, and, and we receive that. And, and we search for the right combination of food or foods uh, when we want more energy or to lower our cholesterol or to increase muscle or to reduce inches or to get into a certain clothing for a special event. We are all about it. Jesus said the same thing. You are what you eat. Eat my flesh, drink my blood, true food, true drink, and you will live forever. This text, John's version of this, this serves us as his version of the institution of um, the Lord's Supper, where the synoptics write about what happened on Monday, Thursday in that upper room in Holy Week, where Jesus takes the bread and he breaks it, and he offers it to his disciples, and he says, take and eat, this is my body. And the cup, he gives thanks, and he says, this is my blood of a new covenant poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. We use that language a lot over in the traditional space, maybe not so much here, but John takes a different path to instituting the Lord's Supper, and he says it just like Jesus said it, eat my flesh, drink my blood. This is my body. This is food for life. In his description of faith formation, or Christian faith formation, if you will, or spiritual maturity... 
Richard Rohr speaks to three stages of maturity. For in first stage, in the first stage understanding, Christians find comfort in the law. What's right and wrong, right? They know where the lines are, what's good and bad, what's left and right, the wheat and the tares, right? There is a, a dualistic posture there, and they find comfort in that. Christians find comfort in knowing where the lines are. But, but he goes on to say that in second stage maturity, it's more about the prophets. And, and, we, and we begin to relate to the call for justice And we hear the messages of the prophets that say, justice matters. And then we begin to respond to that and we start acting for justice and extending mercy and grace. And and we're kind of moving away a little bit from those hard lines, from that certainty that was comfortable for us in the early phase. And then he goes on to say in the final phase, True maturity, the third stage of Christian faith, is one of mystery. Mystery. Where we just don't know. It's where the believer does not demand an explanation for everything and and try to uh, understand everything. We give up our need for certainty and and we embrace the sacredness of of the unexplainable. We don't have to have an answer for everything that is holy when we are fully mature and living in this mysterious faith that changes from moment to moment. If you were to have a conversation with my mother about her three children, it wouldn't take long before she were to tell you that I was the one with a million questions. Always why? Always why, always how. There was a little boy around here that came by the office not long ago, and I don't even remember who he was, but I bet you he asked 30 questions before he left my office to go next door to Kelly. Why? How? She will tell you that I was the one that took apart a brand new bicycle trying to figure out how it works. I wanted to know how those things up here made the wheels stop and how those things made the chain move. I was fascinated by how things work and still am about how things are made. It sort of became a problem when I headed down this path to pastoral ministry. Um, in, when I was in Canada to see the, the, psycholo- the psychologist that did my profile, um, concluded that I would have trouble with the abstract. And I said, no kidding. And the problem is that he gave that to me as a crutch, and so I've tried to use it through my theological studies, but guess what? The professors aren't buying it. <laughs> That's great, but you still got to get it, right? So, so I'm expanding my, my, my brain, my intellect, my ability to see the abstract in those places that used to be firm and, and hard. Mystery. The unexplainable. Those things that go beyond our reason and our need to get there and be okay with it. This meal, the Eucharist, Holy Communion, it is full of mystery. This is the position that the early church 
uh, of the early church and is still recognized by most Christians around the world as a, a sacrament, an outward and visible sign. We can see the bread, we can see the cup, we can taste it, but it's what's going on inside in that moment that is unseen, that matters, and that makes the difference. We believe as Methodists that this happens in that moment where we pray a blessing over the elements and we ask the Holy Spirit to come and, and, and enter those elements. That Jesus' presence is truly in the bread and, and in the cup. We eat and, and drink expecting inward transformation. And the more often that we do it, the more visible the change becomes. As we say, I, I am not what I was, but I am not what I shall be either. That, that sort of in-between, the, the already and the not yet, it is bread and juice and the presence of Christ. I asked some people recently as I was preparing for this sermon of their own personal experiences with Eucharist, with communion. When, if, and if there was a moment that they could remember where, where all of a sudden it changed and, and it was no longer ritual. It wasn't this thing that we just did because it was the first Sunday of the month, but that something powerful happened in that moment where the bread and, and the juice became something other than the ordinary. Incredible stories. Because they can still tell you the moment, the day, the place, the worship service, the church, the mission trip, wherever it was where they stood in that space and received communion and their eyes were opened. For me, it was in 2003. I went through a, a, a series of events uh, in just a few weeks from special worship services to spiritual retreats to mission trips to where I must have taken communion probably 15 times in just a few weeks. And, and each time, something was happening. And as I had said, this was a year or so after I began to study Scripture on a daily basis, and, 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 the, and the meal was becoming this mystery. It was becoming the body and the blood of Christ. It was becoming something that I had never experienced before. It was, it was the season of Lent leading up to Easter that year of 2003, and... Jesus became a real person for me in that season to where the, we went through Holy Week and, and Jesus and I truly grasped the levity, the power, the, the weight of Jesus' death as someone that I knew personally, my friend, had been killed. And then the celebration on Easter Sunday it was the most incredible time and I still remember it as if it were yesterday. We believe that's what happens when we come to this table and we take the bread and we dip it in the cup. We open ourselves up to the mysterious, to that 
that is beyond explanation. For thus, this, it is no memorial meal or a symbol. We do not lift the cup and say, here's to Jesus, he was a really good guy. It's holy. There is divine majesty in it. We approach it humbly. The steeple is a symbol. The cross on top of it is a symbol. That silly little decal you put on your cars is a symbol, but it doesn't change how you drive. This is the life-giving blood and body of Christ that has the power to change your life. And either Jesus was right, and it is, or He was a lunatic, and we are fools. Ritual, symbol, is not life-changing But the mystery of communion, the mystery of this holy meal, this sacred bread and juice is. John Wesley wrote a sermon called The Duty of Constant Communion in which he argued four reasons for taking communion. And evidently, he was having some sort of problem with his congregation. And they were making excuses as to why they didn't want to take communion or they shouldn't take communion. They didn't feel holy enough or worthy or they were sinful or whatever. And he calls it all bunk. And he lays out these four reasons. And and just as a side note, the first church that I went to, um, I, I brought communion back to that place for, on the first Sunday of every month for the first time in a couple of decades. And gosh, you would have thought I'd taken the steeple off the church. You're going to make us into a bunch of Catholics, they said. And so I used Wesley's argument and he says, this is something we do out of obedience. Jesus said, do this. If for no other reason, Jesus says, do it. But then he goes on to say that in it we find forgiveness. Now, over in the traditional service and in the traditional setting, we would precede coming to the table with a prayer of com- confession. And we don't do that here in, in, the, in the contemporary service, but in, in his logic, we confess, we come to the table, we receive Christ, and we go knowing that we are forgiven. And thirdly, he says that it gives us the strength to perform the acts of mercy that God has prepared for us, that He has called us to do. We find our strength in the partaking of this holy mystery. And the more we do it, the more we increase our faith. A more contemporary theologian that I read on a regular basis um, in a book called The Power of Silence. It's, it's by a cardinal, uh, Sarah. And, and he, talks about, he talks about the holy mystery in a way that we should stand in awe and humility as we approach this table. And he goes on to even chastise sort of the pastors and the priests who use lots of words to try and explain it and and to try and make it something that it's not or somehow give it value. And he says, just stand there. Jesus' presence gives it value. 
it is truly holy. Words are not necessary. And it is in that humility that we are to approach the table. And so I've been thinking about this. This is is my attempt at the abstract, by the way. I've been thinking about this theme of, of food for these few weeks leading up to this moment, and I want to share this with you for whatever it's worth. It was food, the apple from the tree, that separated, that created the fall, caused the fall, that separated humanity from its creator in the garden. And it was manna rained down from heaven that sustained the Israelites in the wilderness. And it is food, the bread of heaven, Jesus' flesh and blood that restores life. The fruit of Mary's womb hung on a tree for the salvation of the world. If you are full, if you are overfull, do this and be emptied. If your life is empty, do this. And be filled with the Spirit of the living Christ. If you are lonely, do this and find companionship in Christ. If you are sick, do this and be healed. And if you are broken, do this and be made whole. If you are stuck or bound or held captive or imprisoned, do this and be set free. This is the holy mystery that is beyond explanation In the simple elements of ordinary bread and ordinary juice, Christ is present. We don't understand it. We don't need to explain it. But just as we know that Jesus was raised from the dead, just as he said he would be, we can trust that everything else he said is true. And he said, eat my flesh and drink my blood And you will live forever. Jesus wants us to consume Him so that He can consume us from the inside out. Do this and live. Amen. So we're going to make a quick escape. So stand for your blessing, please. I pray that by this holy mystery, the unexplainable, that you will be filled with the power of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, the power of Jesus' transformation, transfiguration, high on the mountain, now dwells within you. Be transformed in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.